0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, welcome everyone. Back to your seats, good to see you. Um, so we're currently in a series. Uh, called In the Name of Jesus, and we're exploring what it means for us to live in his name, which is one of those phrases that we use a lot in the Christian household, but perhaps we've never really sat and considered what does that mean to live uh, in the name of Jesus. Today we're going to be talking about, uh, there's different ways we can talk about it. We can talk about peace, peaceableness, we can talk about nonviolence, we can talk about pacifism. Um, but I want to remind everyone, we, we kind of have a, a patron saint of our church, did you know this? Uh, we have an unofficial patron saint. This is our patron saint. Um, this is a painting by Edward Hicks from 1834 called The Peaceable Kingdom, uh, a year or two ago. We uh, talked about this, uh, and it kind of comes from these old, old Testament prophecies of the lion and the lamb, you know, lying together in the kind of God's utopian future. But what we pointed out is, number one, Edward Hicks has probably never seen a lion in real life. <laughs> Um, and basically all of the, the predators, uh, they're very uncomfortable <laughs> with the kingdom. And so go to the next slide. He actually tried this several times and still never really got it. I like how the top right line is kind of like combed out his hair. He's got kind of a Farrah Fawcett thing going on, you know, it's like kind of feathered on the sides. Um, but sometimes I think when we talk about peaceableness. Uh, we feel like this lion. We're kind of like in the middle of the kingdom going, I don't, I just don't know. I don't know about this. So um, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want to, you know, as with a lot of the things that I say, um, this is by no means like the be all, end all, like final stance on this. Within um, the Christian faith, over 2,000 years, we've had a robust dialogue about specifically about a lot of the things that jesus says and what he and what he's what he means by and how we live that out and and that becomes part of the process of faith is working hard things out together so if you disagree with me um you can pick a fight with me in the lobby um after this so i'm gonna i'm gonna pray and we're gonna read we're gonna start uh by reading it in the message today and then we're gonna come back through um in the new international version so let's pray um heavenly father we testify that you're here and that you are with us uh, you are for us and you are not against us. Um, Lord, we rejoice um, when those around us say, let us go into the house of the Lord. And there's one thing that we ask, there's one thing that we desire, that we may dwell in your house all the days of our lives. And Father, I pray that we would never take it for granted. That we have the opportunity to come together in your name, to worship you, to glorify your name, to lean into one another, to encourage each other, to challenge each other. And through that engagement in spaces like this or like our community groups throughout the week or wherever we gather, we're transformed. To look a little bit more like you than we did when we began so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing O lord our rock and our redeemer amen So says matthew chapter 5 verses 38 to 48 i'm going to read it and then i'm going to give you <clears throat> a moment of silence after just to sit and contemplate what is maybe one thing that the lord is inviting you to to focus in on, even if it's something that you don't inherently understand, but just to sit there and to see what it is that the Lord might be saying to you particularly. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court, and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the subtle moves of prayer. For then you're working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm, the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless. The good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. You're kingdom subjects, now live like it. Live out your God-created identity live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. I'll give you one moment of silence to sit with them. I like how often people, uh, I used to be one of them, were critical of the message, saying that's a watered-down version of scripture, but I think sometimes Eugene Peterson kind of puts it pretty abjectly. And here where he says, grow up. Okay, I love that. Um, this is a difficult passage, um, and perhaps you, like I, kind of enter into something like this, and you start kind of working it through the matrix of what you've already perceived as right and wrong, and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, and you kind of work yourself into this place. And so I want to begin by going ahead and giving the anti-sermon that you've already written in your heart, and it's this, Jesus had some nice ideas, but they just won't work in the real world. Isn't this what we all think when we hear the words of Jesus? We're like, wow. Jesus had some great ideas, but uh, have you seen the world? I don't know, I don't know what, what world Jesus is living in, but this, gosh darn it, this is a violent world. This is a cruel world. And uh, if we were to do what he was asking of us, uh, we'd find ourselves on the, on the losing side here pretty quick. I think it is very funny what we take literally in scripture and what we take metaphorically in scripture um, i don't think anybody actually takes the entire book script- of or any of the scriptures literally um, because there's things like this that jesus says that we are kind of looking for the loophole we're looking for the way out we're looking for the exception automatically before we really sit in in the kind of vision that jesus is painting us And just the awe of what it is that he's saying, we're automatically looking for the out rather than just sitting there and saying, what is this life that Jesus is calling us to? And unfortunately, it's because we're so conditioned to be utilitarian in how we live our lives. What does that mean? It essentially means um, I make decisions based on whatever I think is the best outcome. And so maybe for a time, you and I will try Jesus's way of being peaceable um, but then we just will kind of admit that sometimes violence is necessary or it's the last resort. A lot of times we usually, what really happens is it just becomes the second resort. When the ways of Jesus don't get us what we want or what we think life should be about, we abandon the ways of Jesus and we return to the very things that it is that he has saved us from and we switch gears. Because ultimately, we desire a life of comfort, uh, we desire a life of ease, we desire a life of safety. Um, but who becomes a Christian because it's a safe way to be in the world? I think this is often where we go astray. And so we hear these dangerous ideas of Jesus, and we say, "Well, that's a really nice. It'd be really nice if that worked in in the real world, but it doesn't." Have you seen the world, Jesus? And perhaps it's him that we tell to grow up. So what I want to do is I'm going to go back through this passage, kind of breaking up into two chunks, um, and sh- kind of do a little bit of the historical and cultural stuff that's happening here because I think it's really important that we understand that. There's a lot happening in these scriptures that we just don't understand from our 21st century world, um, and then talk about the connotations of what this potentially means for us. So, Uh, What we see in the first piece, this is going to be Matthew 38 to 42, is that Jesus speaks um, to real-world scenarios in which violence and fear would tend to get the best of us. And so this is uh, reading it from the NIV, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So what is it that Jesus is inviting us to consider in how our posture of peaceableness affects the world around us? I think he's saying that to live in the name of Jesus is to develop the courage and imagination to live peaceably in a violent world. Uh, newsflash: First century Palestine was not a very nice place to live. You had uh, occupation by the Roman Empire. You had a very oppressive uh, Jewish government that were subservient to that empire. You had a very oppressive institutional religion that kind of liked to keep the status quo of society in place. Um, it was full of thieves and robbers, terror on every side. And these are a terrorized people that, for generations, um, we've just yesterday when we were uh, doing our all day teaching on how to read the Bible, the question with the scriptures is always, who's in charge? And it's almost never the people of Israel. It's almost always some sort of an oppressive regime um, that has power over them. So the first century was an incredibly violent place, which is why it's so funny when we think, well, Jesus had nice ideas, but those don't work in the real world. In reality, the world that we live in is probably far less violent than the one that he did. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's taking several kind of well-known situations in their uh, time period, um, and he's kind of challenging the assumed responses to those. So first, we find this eye-for-an-eye eye idea, um, not just in the ancient scriptures, um, in the Jewish Torah, um, but also a lot in the, in the ancient Near East, this was kind of a well-known maxim, eye-for-an-eye and tooth for tooth and it was meant to be kind of a preventative form of justice that um if you struck out against your neighbor or you made false accusations and those turn things turned out to to be revealed as false they have every opportunity to kind of strike back so the idea is like if we can get people to stop fighting like the the threat of what could happen to you is enough to keep you from doing bad things that's kind of how eye for an eye generally works but over time what we recognize is that rather than being a preventative form of law it ends up becoming a retributive form of law because of the nature of human beings and so we quite gladly will look for retribution as long as it serves us there's this um, uh, there's this old joke in Slovenia you guys didn't know that I was well-versed in Slovenian jokes Um, but a genie uh, Uh, comes to a farmer and says, "Um, I will grant you anything that you wish, uh, but whatever you ask for, I'm going to give double to your neighbor. And the farmer says, okay, we'll take one of my eyes. Um, And this is often how we move through the world. Um, It's this tit-for-tat justice. I think a lot of our justice system in the United States is based on this. When we talk about justice, what we're usually talking about is a form of retributive justice that whatever you did we're going to take that back from you in terms of um, how many years of your life you're going to spend in jail or we put um, we put dollar signs next to you know, value of, of human life or um, how long you, you know how long you're gonna be in prison, or, or whatever it is a lot of our justice in the modern world is unfortunately in this kind of tit for tat idea and so Jesus is saying rather than living eye for an eye do not resist An evil person. And then he comes to this next one. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This is a very difficult uh, thing to understand. I might actually need a a volunteer from the audience for this one. Daniel, why don't you come on up here? I promise I won't actually slap you. Yeah, I'm serious. Come up here. I'm just going to pantomime so in the ancient world, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot of honor and shame in society, right? Like that's, they're a bit more honor-shame, we're a bit more like kind of guilty-innocent. And to slap somebody, um, first off, to, to show your superiority, you're going to backhand them, okay? To say, I'm in a superior mood. So if I wanted to backhand Daniel, <laughs> what I'm positing is I'm clearly superior to him. So it's, it's right-hand to right cheek. Did Where you guys... We'll get it over here, just because I don't th- feel like you guys over there oh, saw that well no. enough. Uh, just making sure everybody gets the right angle to it. So, it's just for illustrative purposes, John. This is, you know, this isn't the real world. So, so what, what Jesus is saying is, do, you know, the, if they hit you on the right cheek, the implication is that they're using the right hand. Now, if he turns the other cheek, turn, look that way, I can't backhand him with this hand, okay? So I've got two options. Number one, I'm going to backhand him with the left hand. Now, does anybody want to know what the left hand is in the Middle East? Huh? Yes, it's the poopy hand. It's the unclean hand. So what it does is it invites shame upon me because I slapped him. <laughs> <laughs> I should have got a do giant rubber you <laughs> Yeah, you could get, get me back. So I'm inviting shame upon myself by using the unclean hand. The other option would be to open palm him with my right hand. But that kind of strike is meant for equals, not for a superior to an inferior, okay? So the interesting thing of what Jesus is saying, because a lot of times when we think nonviolence, we think pacifism, we think passivity, is that you just grin and bear it. You just take it. But in reality, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you're going to offer up an option to your oppressor that forces them in one way or the other to contend with the fact that you are a human being worthy of dignity, either they hit you with their unclean hand inviting shame upon themselves or um, they hit you open-handed to admit that you are their equal okay you can go ahead and different that right now yeah oh you're not going to wow <laughs> daniel's learned daniel graduated you don't even need this sermon daniel that's amazing later later okay <laughs> So the, the, second, the next one is rather similar. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. So people didn't have a lot of items of clothing in the ancient Near East. And so if someone was to come along and demand um, that they give you, you know, you give them the shirt off of your back, to give them the cloak as well means that you are there standing naked in front of them. Now, to, to see someone naked in front of you actually invites shame on you as the viewer. So it's kind of doing something similar to the turn the other cheek mode. It's like, I'm going to actually, through my radical kindness, give you something that doesn't shame me. It actually shames you to recognize what is it that you're actually asking of me. And so it's kindness that invites a different form of justice. And then finally, if anyone uh, forces you one mile, go with them two. So in the Roman Empire, um, there was a policy that a Roman soldier could ask any average citizen to carry their pack, but they could only ask them to carry it one mile, okay? So it's kind of a conscription, conscription kind of idea. As a soldier, you could ask any Joe on the street to carry your pack for you, but you could only ask them to do it for one mile. So for you to go two miles, what does that actually do? It invites shame upon the Roman soldier that they're taking advantage of someone, and it makes them look lazy and weak. And so in each of these Modes far from asking us to be passive and to like a kind of negative form of mercy that a lot of us kind of understand is like, well, you just grin and bear it and you just take, you know, you suffer the slings and arrows. He's saying, no, there's a way of actually creatively being present in the midst of violence that changes the narrative, that forces an oppressor to recognize that you are a human being worthy of dignity and to really consider the actions that they're participating in. Um, that actually dehumanize themselves as well. So nonviolence is not passivity, but it's a struggle to find alternatives to violence. That the weapons of the kingdom, the weapons of Jesus' people, become kindness, forgiveness, and peaceful resistance. Now this really taps into what I believe is the core of our ethical orientation as Christians. There's two main Um, schools of thought in ethics if any of you have ever studied that in in, in your philosophy courses the first as I mentioned is utilitarian ethics which is how do I make decisions based on what I perceive to be the best outcome whatever I if you got option a option B I kind of consider the like what's the potential and then I'm going to choose option a I think that's gonna have the best outcome that's utilitarian ethics and that's a lot of times how we operate in this world um, unfortunately, um, that often contributes to the cycle of violence. Remember back in the day when I used to debate people on Facebook. Anybody else? You were used to be that person. That oh, was the good old days, right? Oh boy, I actually saw a friend of mine just got back on this week, and he was just like, "Okay, I'm ready for it." And I'm like, "Bro, we, we moved past that. Now it's X, formerly known as Twitter. That's the place to go and just uh, be pompous." Uh, but back in the day when I was pompous and I was on Facebook, somebody had posted something like, "Oh, I'm so this is." kind of dates a little bit They're like I'm we're, I'm so glad that you know our military is gonna step up and we're gonna go into this place and we're gonna fight in the name of freedom and I was like here's the one problem with that that's the excuse that we've given for every single war that the United States did you know the United States has been in war every single year of its existence except for three years and we're what two hundred and seventy odd years old like we've been at war and then, and then you can tie them together right like We were in Afghanistan because we were fighting Al-Qaeda, and we went into Iraq because of the same. Um, But um, we were fighting in the 80s, we were fighting the Soviets, and we gave weapons to this nice young man named Osama bin Laden because he was fighting the Soviets, and we made an alliance with this nice young man, Saddam Hussein, in 1985 because he was fighting Iran, and so we actually supported the people that in a couple decades were our primary enemies, and we were fighting them. And we were fighting against the Soviets, and we did that in Vietnam, and we didn't lose because we pulled out and so it doesn't count and we are actually fighting in Korea for a pretty much exact same reason and we were fighting the soviets in the cold war this whole time right from the end of world war II, where they were our pals because we were fighting the nazis who were obviously very bad people and we were fighting the nazis because we had absolutely destroyed german society in the 19 in the 1917 you know, when world war 1 the germans were completely devoid of any kind of identity so this young man named Adolf Hitler came along and said you have no identity like I'm going to return we're going to make Germany great again and he preyed upon the actual destruction of the German people in order to 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 form the Nazi Germany but we destroyed Germany in the in world war one because some guy called Franz Ferdinand had been shot by this guy you know it's just like every single war we have we think of them in isolation but like Every war is related to every other war in this world. Is it working yet? Are we better off? Have we brought that much freedom? And then you bring into it all of the little, you know, kind of banana republic wars and how we've overturned regimes in different countries in the name of freedom and so on and so forth, and all of this stuff. It's like, has it worked? That's what utilitarian ethics does to us. Now, the alternative to utilitarian. Uh, ethics is what's called deontological ethics. And this means I'm gonna do what is right regardless of the outcome. Um, And that is a very noble form of ethics. But of course it asks the question, who determines what is right? Who determines what is right and what is wrong? Because we're so shaped by our surrounding culture with different values and sometimes competing values with other cultures it becomes a recipe for imperialism. So we do what we think is right based on our particular society and our orientation to values. And so utilitarian ethics has its problems, deontological ethics has its problems, and that brings us to the, the ethics, the Christian ethics, that tend to put peaceableness as the center of our ethical orientation, which means that we live in a way that God has called us to live and that we trust that God is going to move through our faithfulness. See, faithfulness is actually our dramatic orientation uh, to ethical decisions. We don't make decisions based on what we think is the best outcome. And we don't make them based on whatever we think is right. We live the way that Jesus has called us to live and we leave the results up to God. Because ultimately, what I think any kind of ethical stance, especially with a potentially violent response to the violence of the world, is to question, do we really believe that Jesus has already won peace for us on the cross? If we are sh- shaped, if we are shaped in the image of Jesus, if we look at Jesus on the cross, we say that is actually what God looks like. And that's the radical claim of Christianity. To say, rather than being a bigger stick to the fight, God actually chose the path of nonviolence to incur the sin of the whole world but to bury that in death and then to be raised to new life. Do we actually believe the story or not? And I think for you and for me, when we choose violence, what we're saying is, well, I don't actually believe that story. I think Jesus had some really nice ideas. and I think the cross is a really lovely image that doesn't work in the real world. And inadvertently what we do is we, rather than breaking a silent, the cycle of violence, through our Christian witness we just continue to contribute to it eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We, we, through our words and our actions we continue to exact violence because maybe we don't, we just believe that what God accomplished on the cross, that peace has been won for us, is just too wonderful to bear. And so in the second form of this passage we, we look at verses 30, 43 to 48. Now Jesus pivots from how nonviolence or peaceableness, affects the oppressor, he kind of turns it on us in the second part. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus pivots from "This this is what this peaceable way of being in the world does for the world to this is what this peaceable way of being in the world does for us. That learning to love our enemies purges us of hate so we can become perfect like God. I've told this story before, but in 2009, I took a team um, to Poland at my previous church. We had a sister church there. We were working with them. It was a really wonderful time to connect with them and it just a you know, very different culture than ours. Um, and we had an opportunity to go out to East Poland to visit the Majdanek uh, concentration camp, which, although it wasn't one of the biggest... It's the best preserved, um, that the Soviets kind of rushed in so quickly, the Nazis had no time to clean up after themselves. They just kind of dropped everything and ran. Um, And this was kind of early November, so it was cold and and drizzly. Um, There weren't a lot of people there at all. It was just myself and my team. And we had an opportunity to just kind of walk around by ourselves. There was a a whole barrack that had something like 40,000 pairs of shoes that were getting ready to be shipped uh, to Berlin to be sold on the streets to the Germans to raise funds for the war. Uh, just all this stuff that had been collected from the people that had died in this concentration camp. And I remember walking in these barracks and kind of this like, you know, kind of a road filled with like ballast, so it's all just like just rocks, and I had my boots on and I was, I was became very aware, because it was so quiet, I became very aware of the echo of the crunching of my boots on the rock between these different barracks, and I just had that Chill in my spine. Maybe some of you had it. like, oh my gosh, I'm walking where Nazis walk. Has anybody ever experienced that? Like, when you're kind of over there and you're like, wow, like, that's terrifying. Like, what monsters, what horrible people. And I swear to you in that moment, the Lord said to me, the thing that was in them is in you as well. Okay? So that was a, that was a bus ride back. Because we like to think, and again, because of our superiority, Um, because of our exceptionalism, even because of our Christian faith, we like to think that we're the ones that are on the right side of history. And the people that are on the right side of history tend to do everything they can in order to prevent themselves from having to uh, experience the reality that perhaps they're not. The writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was kind of thrown in these camps uh, by the Soviets uh, just a decade or two later, said that The line between good and evil does not run between nations or ideas, but through every human heart. And so there's this consistent pattern in the way that Jesus speaks to us. He says, you've heard it said this, and it's kind of about arranging the world outside of you, but I'm going to tell you it's actually like this. That you need to internalize these things and recognize there's something deeper happening. Even in a prior part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, every time that you call your, your brother a fool, you've murdered him in your heart. And you're like, well, thanks, Jesus. What am I supposed to do with that? Like, I thought I was great. I thought I was doing so well. But Jesus is doing something to us. He's inviting us to this deeper level of recognition that he... not only like we live peaceably because we recognize how much violence is within each one of us and the fascinating thing about what Jesus is doing here is it even bucks up against a lot of the Old Testament teachings because when you if you know the Old Testament you know the Psalms you know these other kind of cries out to God like we pray for our enemies, all right, but we pray for vengeance, right? That psalm that says, Oh, that you would take my children's enemies by the ankles and dash them against the rocks. And haven't we all had that day? <laughs> you know? The the Old Testament is full of that. Like God's on our side, and he exacts revenge upon our enemies. And even today, a lot of Christians would use Old Testament imagery to say, God exact revenge on our enemies, on those people over there. They're the ones that are responsible for all the, the, the evil in the world. Send us a hurricane, Lord, but only make it hit the gays, you know? That's how we did Oh, this tornado, and it was a revenge upon those. It's all this Old Testament imagery of, like, God is on our side, he likes us, and he's going to beat up our enemies. Our, and it's just so convenient that our enemies are God's enemies, right? But what is it that Jesus is doing here when he says... You've heard it said, love your neighbor, and then the unwritten part, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we believe justice is tit for tat, it's just about balancing the scales, it becomes a race to the bottom. You strike me, I strike you, you feel like my strike was a little bit harder than yours, so I, you know, all, those of you who have siblings, you know how this version of justice works. Just blow that out into a nation state, you know? Um, it becomes a race to the bottom, or as Muhammad Gandhi said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. There's also this old uh, Bedouin saying, the nomadic people of North Africa, who said, it's me against my brother. It's me and my brother against our cousin. It's me and my brother and my cousin against our neighbor." it's me and my brother and my cousin and my neighbor against the other tribe it, you know and like that's that's how we think we're so like stuck in this tribalistic mindset especially in our society today because we're trying to control the narrative there's this uh, phenomenon called the law of group polarization that means when when our when our group is more defined by who we hate together we become more extreme in our positions this is what we see in our country in the political like, like extremities the seven percent on either side of the political stri- spectrum become louder and louder and louder and they become more and more extreme and they dominate more of the, the the public narrative and many of us feel like we don't have a place to land because in order to belong we have to take these extreme like sometimes violent um, ideas of who, what justice really looks like but to have the audacity to love our enemies it reveals the violence in our own hearts. That you and I were trying to control the narrative through our violence, we're trying to prevent ourselves from having to admit that this exists within us. We're trying to take justice into our own hands because we don't believe that God is moving fast enough for our fancy. That we'll just go ahead and do it, we'll bring justice, and that's basically the same thing. And the question here becomes, who is my enemy? You know, Jesus has these different categories that he talks about, the least of these, or the neighbor, or the enemy, like, who is my enemy? And for me, I think an enemy is anyone who threatens your illusions about who you think you are. And it may be somebody that is actually attacking you physically, but it may also be the homeless person that asks you for money when you're walking down the street. That you're in crisis when they ask you because they're forcing you to confront that maybe you're not as generous as you'd like to think. And so they become your enemy, and you 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 repel from them. You kind of avoid them or run off. It may be a friend or a family member who asks too much of you, or who is difficult, and it makes you feel uncomfortable because you slowly recognize maybe I don't actually have it together in the way that I thought that I did. And he. The audacity of Jesus to say this at the end be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect the word perfect here means to be complete to be whole to be at peace which is to say that we imitate the character of God again when we look to the cross what do we see do we see a God who strikes back against his enemies Do we see a God who picks up a bigger stick in order to make a point? Or do we see a God who suffers well, who takes into himself the violence of the world, who conquers the powers and the principalities not through violence but through peaceable love and who actually comes through it on the other side in new life? This is the pinnacle of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our Father is perfect because our Father has enemies. Right? God has enemies. That's you. That's me. We're the enemies of God. We don't really like him a whole lot, especially when he says things like this to us. But what does God do? God loves us into relationship. The perfection of God is his desire for completeness and wholeness and total intimate relationship. And so the invitation for us to become perfect like God is to be patterned after him. So ultimately, whatever our relationship is to our ethical decisions, whatever our relationship is to violence, whether we believe it's the last resort or merely the second resort, it gets to the core of what we believe about God and what we really think God accomplished through the life of death and resurrection of Jesus this is not utilitarian it's not easy and it certainly is not safe but when you were called to Christ you were not called to a life of ease and safety you were called to relationship and I wanna give the last word to Uncle Stanley, who speaks so beautifully about this peaceableness that we're called to live in. He says Christians are called to live nonviolently, not because we believe nonviolence is a strategy to rid the world of war, but in a world of war, as faithful followers of Christ, we cannot imagine being anything other than nonviolent. Our strange claim as Christians is that the world has already been made peaceable through Jesus it just doesn't know it yet it's not our job to make the world a more peaceable place we can work towards that we can work towards reconciliation but ultimately we live in the way that we live because we can't imagine living any other way and so that peace that was won for the whole world on the cross becomes the peace that we offer to the world in the way that we respond to our enemies. And this peaceable nonviolence has implications for all sorts of ethical quandaries. In this country, when we talk about our rights, what does it mean for us as Christians to live according to peace? Is our relationship to guns in this country as Christians shaped by the Sermon on the Mount or by the Second Amendment? Is our relationship to the topic of abortion shaped by our political parties or is it shaped by the peaceableness of the Kingdom? Is our understanding of the military industrial complex that dominates so much of the economy of the United States that well over 50% of our budget is just for so-called defense? Are we making decisions out of a place of the kingdom or the empire? When we look at the death penalty, unfortunately when you look at a map of which states have a death penalty and which don't, it's all the ones that you think would have a death penalty that have a death penalty. The supposedly most Christian ones. Do we value life the way that God values life? Does it shape our understanding of our careers? the jobs that we will and will not take because some careers deal in death some careers profit off of violence and as Christians we say we cannot possibly continue to contribute to these cycles of violence we are called to live in a radically different way and so I want you to stand with me and we're going to pray together That as followers of Jesus, we take on ourselves patience and long-suffering. That we trust God and God's ways are the ways to save the world. And we pray for the time when we all shall be peaceable. So I, um, I wrote a prayer. The, the first half of it is going to have opportunities for you to intercede and just to do some work with the Lord and say, Where is the hatred in my heart? Where are the places where I love my neighbor and I hate my enemy. And can I begin to pivot to praying for my enemies so that I might be more perfect like you? And in the second part, we're gonna commit ourselves to a peaceable way of being in the world. Let's pray. Oh God, the Father of all, whose Son commanded us to love our enemies, lead them and us from prejudice to truth, Deliver them and us from hatred, cruelty, and revenge. And in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We pray for our enemies around the world, that they may come to see the vision of your peaceable kingdom as the only path to justice and truth. I want you to pray for our enemies internationally. enemies within our own country, that you would bring down the dividing walls of hostility between ideological tribes that turn neighbor against neighbor. Let's pray for peace in our own divided nation. Our personal enemies all who threaten us whether by the words or actions or who by their mere presence invite us to confront the fact we are not as loving to call and Lord jesus prince of peace we repent of the hatred in our own hearts we repent of the violence we have perpetrated in the name of retributive justice whether through thought word or deed Grant us courage to live peaceably as far as it is possible and develop in us the patience necessary to see your kingdom revealed in our time. Eternal God, in whose perfect kingdom no sword is drawn but the sword of righteousness, no strength known but the strength of love, so mightily spread abroad your spirit that all peoples may be gathered under the banner of the Prince of Peace, as children of one Father, to whom be dominion and glory, now and forever. Amen. Let's worship. I think sometimes we all feel like a poorly painted lion, um, with hair, your hair straightened and highlighted, and kind of that deer-in-the-headlight look. Uh, Because it's hard to believe that the kingdom of Jesus is our true home because we're so conditioned by the world from which we've been saved. Um, But that's our place. I think as we just sang, it's important to recognize the church and the kingdom are not the same thing. The church is a ragtag group of people who are stumbling their way into the kingdom together, are learning how do we live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven we're working that out as we go along. But I know for me, I'm tired of the status quo of the world. I'm tired of the lack of imagination that we have as human beings to know what is the better way. And instead of reading the words of Jesus and saying, well, he had some really nice ideas, but that's just not going to work. I actually want to try it out and take him at his word. Maybe believe that the vision that Jesus has for the human family. It's far more beautiful than anything that we can create on our own, but it requires us to have a tremendous amount of courage to say, well, what do we really believe? Do we want to create the loopholes so we can get out of life alive, or do we want to take him at his word and be faithful witnesses to him? I think that's where the maturity comes in our Christian faith. So I want to encourage you this week, I want you to take five minutes every day I want you to read that passage Matthew 5 38 to 48 and I want you to pray for your enemies whoever the spirit brings up internationally nationally someone in this room I want you to pray for your enemies and allow God to change your heart to purge you of the hatred that you have in your heart so that you might become more perfect uh, like your Heavenly Father is perfect so when you extend your hands out to receive uh, this ancient benediction May the peace of Christ go with you, wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness. May he protect you. May he show you what it means to live peaceably in a violent world. May he bring you home, rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you he bring you home rejoicing once again through our doors. Amen. See you all next week. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at Ch. We hope you join us again soon.